Welcome to the Talking Leaves podcast. I'm your host, Ms. Kyra, and we are returning for episode 8 of our mini-series about Homer's The Odyssey. In the last seven episodes, we closely read Homer's stage setting in book one, we met Calypso the Sweet Nymph in book five, and we read about Odysseus's 20-day battle at sea with Poseidon on a puny raft before he washed ashore on the island of the Phoenicians. There, he was offered the hand in marriage of a young princess, which he seriously considered before declining and asking for a boat to continue his journey homeward. In this episode, we will look at perhaps the most famous of all of Odysseus's tales, his battle with Polyphemus, the Cyclops. The battle that brings about the wrath of Poseidon, which then plagues Odysseus for nearly 10 years. But wait, how does that work? How long is his journey? 30 years? Deep breath. Remember, this story is not told chronologically. We start the Odyssey nearly 20 years after Odysseus left Ithaca. The Trojan War lasted 10 years, and Odysseus has spent 10 more years trying to return home. For those 10 years trying to return home, he was stuck on Calypso's island for seven. Maybe we can understand why he grieved every day. He was a prisoner, albeit a well-kept one, on a paradise-inspiring island for seven long years. As we just reviewed, Odysseus leaves Calypso's island, and after a battle in the sea for 20 days, he washes up on the land of the Phoenicians. It is there that Odysseus speaks with King Alcinous, mostly concealing his identity, until finally the king asks him to tell the whole party, there's a feast, there's always a feast, the Greeks knew how to celebrate. And so, at this feast, Odysseus tells of his journey. Odysseus takes us back in time to right after he and his men left Troy. And with that, we begin our episode in earnest. We hear Odysseus reflect on his wild, and at times, ill-witted adventure. The very first line of our version of Book 9 is, I am Laertes' son. At this point, Odysseus finally reveals his identity and tells the Phoenician king Alcinous who he is and where he's been. Think of this revelation, this revealing of his name after three books of not telling who he is to the king, as dramatically as Bond, James Bond. From here, Odysseus wonders what he should say first and what he should keep until the end. Odysseus himself is telling his story, and he wonders how he should tell it. He wants the king to know his name and who he is, most likely so that in case Odysseus dies or doesn't make it home, Alcinous, Odysseus's new friend, as he calls him, will be bonded to tell someone of his death, even though his land lies far. In other words, Odysseus wants this king to know who he is and where he's from, so that if something happens to Odysseus, this king will have to send word to his family that Odysseus has died. Hmm... Maybe Odysseus regrets being gone for so long and leaving his family without any word, without any news or sign? Probably. I say this with a bit of spice because, as you will soon learn, Odysseus, the cunning man, makes some downright stupid decisions that cost him time and his family, as we already know, much suffering. Anyways, Odysseus goes on to tell who he is. Men hold me formidable for guile and peace and war. This fame has gone abroad to the sky's rim. Well, someone certainly has some ego. He knows his own fame, and he brags about this to his listeners. Remember, 
For the Greeks, this probably wasn't considered a flaw. They wanted people to be heroes, for their fame to be spread far and wide. So Odysseus stating that this is the truth, when we know it's the truth, because Athena has just been bragging about him as well, is not a bad thing, even though it may rub us a wrong way, because we like humility. In essence, what he says here is that men hold him formidable, which means they hold him in fear or in awe. Men are afraid of him for his guile, his trickery, his cunning, his deceit. This is the same word that Athena uses in book one when telling Telemachus his options for killing the suitors, outright or by guile. She admires this deceitful nature of Odysseus and wants to see this in his son. This guile, while we might see it a flaw, is actually a part of Athena and Odysseus' strengths. In war, you have to be tricky, you have to be strategic, which is Athena's power and part of the reason why she likes Odysseus so much, because he is just like her. He also admits that he is not just tricky or strategic during war times, he is also tricky and strategic during peace times. Remember, the Greeks had different values than we have today, so while we may not trust Odysseus, and even they did not necessarily always trust Odysseus, they were still inspired and thought of him as heroic. He was not goody-two-shoes Captain America. From here, he goes on to describe where Ithaca is, so that way, again, if this king needs to tell somebody, then this king knows exactly where to send word of Odysseus. Odysseus mentions, then, where he has been, and he says, I shall not see on earth a place more dear to me than Ithaca. And he also explains that he's been detained a long time by the loveliest amongst the goddesses, Calypso. He has also been detained by Circe, the Enchantress, which means a witch, who also wanted Odysseus for her own. Clearly, he's a desirable guy. But, he says, no matter how much these goddesses wanted him, where shall a man find sweetness to surpass his own home and his parents? In far lands he shall not, though he find a house of gold. Odysseus admits that while he'll never find a place as sweet or as lovely as his own home, along his adventures elsewhere, he shall certainly find a lot of riches. Which, we will soon learn, is one of the reasons that Odysseus didn't head straight home after the Trojan War. He wasn't done looting or gathering wealth yet. Also, probably this highlights why Odysseus and Telemachus and Penelope had so much to continually entertain the suitors with, and why the storyteller spent such great detail describing the finery they had at their house, because Odysseus was really good at trickery and stealing things. With this said, he goes on to say, What of my sailing then from Troy? What of those years of rough adventure weathered underneath Zeus? Here, he fully steps into storytelling mode, sending his memory and his audience back in time to when he first left Troy. And in the summary of our version of the text, we hear that Odysseus explains that after leaving Troy, he and his crew land near Ismarus, which is the city of the Sisones, who were allies of the Trojans and therefore enemies of Odysseus. Therefore, Odysseus and his crew had the full right to invade them, as well as rob and kill them to their heart's content, or until the Sisone army killed 72 of Odysseus's men and drove the rest out to sea. According to study.com, Odysseus and his men escaped death on the island of Ismarus, but this escape does not come without a price. Because his men did not listen to orders, many died in a battle that could have been avoided. Delayed by a storm for ten days, Odysseus and his remaining companions then continued their journey toward home. It is here in the story that Odysseus and his men land on the island of the Lotus Eaters. Odysseus admits, 
I might have made it safely home that time, but as I came around Malaya, the current took me out, and from the north a fresh gale drove me on, and for nine days I drifted on the sea before dangerous high winds, and on the tenth day we came to the coastline of the lotus eaters who live upon that flower. We landed there to take on water. This is saying that he could have made it home, but something or some god interfered and sent a wind to send him out to sea. To put it differently, Odysseus explains that for some reason, he didn't head straight home. He could be admitting that he kind of wanted more adventure and more looting, or he could actually have been interfered and messed with on his way home by a god or goddess who wanted him to continue on this adventure. We don't really know. We just know that Odysseus is saying he didn't go straight home for some reason, and that it seems to be out of his control. At this point, they needed more water, so they landed on the island of the Lotus Eaters, and he sent two men and a runner to learn what race of men that that land sustained. He wanted to know who lived there on this land, enemy or ally, but these men he sent to investigate. They fell in soon enough with the Lotus Eaters, who showed no will to do us harm, only offering the sweet lotus to our friends. But those who ate this honeyed plant, the lotus, never cared to report nor to return. They longed to stay forever, browsing on that native bloom, forgetful of their homeland. In other words, anyone who ate the lotus suddenly forgot other ambitions. They forgot everything else except that they wanted to stay there and continue to eat the lotus. If you've ever seen the Percy Jackson movies, then you know what this is talking about. The modern day interpretation in those movies involved Percy, Annabelle, and Grover heading into a casino in Las Vegas and learning that anyone there has been trapped there for a very long time. I have this vivid memory of them running into a guy from the 70s in bell bottoms and the hair. This lotus is essentially a drug. As Britannica tells us, the Greeks called several non-narcotic plants lotos, but the name may have been used in this case for the opium poppy, the ripe seed pod of which resembles the pod of a true lotus. The phrase to eat lotus is used metaphorically by numerous ancient writers to mean forget or to be unmindful. This lotus was a serious drug that could make you forget everything else. And this is exactly what happens to Odysseus's men. Odysseus had to retrieve them and bring them back to the ship itself. I drove them, all three wailing to the ships, tied them down under the, the rowing benches, and called the rest. All hands on board! Come, clear the beach, and no one taste the lotus, or you lose hope of your home. Even though they didn't want to be rescued, Odysseus rescues them and forces these three men who had ingested the lotus to return to the ship. He ties them down underneath the benches where they row the oars of the ship and tells everyone else they're not allowed to eat the lotus. Get back on ship. Otherwise, you'll never want to return home. You will never see Ithaca again. This is one of those times when Odysseus is seen and proves himself a strong leader. He is willing to save the men from themselves and make sure that they get home. After leaving the Lotus Eaters behind, Odysseus and his men next encounter the Cyclops, the giants, louts without a law to bless them. Odysseus does not have a high opinion of these creatures, who I like to imagine as Mike Wazowski's great, 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 keep going, ancestors. They were giant, they were uncivilized, and according to Odysseus, who has questionable morals himself, lawless. Also, in Odysseus's opinion, they live ignorantly, 
They live alone in their own mountain caves, they don't work together, and they deal out rough justice to wife and child, indifferent to what others do. In other words, the near-complete antithesis or opposite of how the Greeks lived, how most human societies live. The Cyclops minded their own business, they did whatever they wanted, and they were quite cruel to their wife and children, and they didn't stop others from being cruel either. While maybe not the complete opposite to humans, Odysseus does not respect them, which shows us something of the Greeks' morals. They believed in war, looting, trickery, but they didn't condone rough justice going unpunished. Remember, Odysseus is telling this part in hindsight. This is the story that he's telling to the king of the Phoenicians. So he doesn't know any of this ahead of time when he first visits the Cyclops. This is what he knows after his encounter with them. Clearly, something did not go well. Odysseus learned his lesson from a stop with the Sasones and the Lotus Eaters, and he decided not to park or stop their ships right in front of the island of the Cyclops, or to send men up right away. Instead, they stopped across the bay from the land of the Cyclops, where there was a deserted island. So, that is where Odysseus and his crew landed, and they spent days there feasting on wine and wild goats. Finally, Odysseus sent a few men to see if the Cyclops were friends or foes. In a few places, we hear the same lines. And this is another example of the memorized and repetitive stanzas the rhapsodes the professional storytellers would use to help them tell the story. When the young dawn with fingertips of rose came in the east, Odysseus called his men together and spoke to them. And in lines 71 through 75, Odysseus tells most of his crew what will happen. He and his own group of men, his own company of men, will travel across the bay to visit the mainland of the Cyclops to find out if they are wild savages and lawless or hospitable and God-fearing men. This time, he is the one willing to take the risk, the danger of going to investigate who these people are. He doesn't want to risk more of his men. In lines 76 through about 86, we see the description of what they see on the mainland. So there's a lot of detail so we can help visualize what's going on. Then starting with line 87 through 92 on page 1213 of our version, we see a prodigious man who slept alone in his cave and took his flocks to graze a field, remote all companions, knowing none but savage ways. A brute so huge, he seemed no man at all of those who eat good wheaten bread, but he seemed rather a shaggy mountain reared in solitude. They saw a man who did not seem a man at all, because he didn't eat the same thing that Odysseus or his man ate, like bread, and he didn't hang out with other people. He was a bit of a loner, a bit of a recluse, which was apparently another reason that Odysseus didn't like him and thought him a brute or brainless beast, unintelligent but physically strong. And lastly, he was so big, he didn't seem a man at all. Instead, he seemed a mountain. Now this seems to be a bit judgy and rude, but we'll find out what happened to shape Odysseus's opinions. And to some extent, we're all like this with the unknown. On Netflix, there's a series called Myths and Monsters, which is fantastic. And in one of the episodes, they talk about the wilderness, the unknown. And I want to share a piece of this with you. The presenter, Nicholas Day, explains, The wilderness fulfilled an important role for the Greeks. But by exploring what lay beyond the boundaries of society, people defined what lay within them as well. By telling stories of the monsters outside, they better understood those within. Essentially, on many of Odysseus's encounters, he is dealing with the unknown, with the other. 
and his encounters with this outside world tell important values and lessons about the Greeks themselves and their society, as Nicholas Day suggests. They could look outside to better see what was inside themselves too. And when Odysseus and his small band of men cross over to the mainland and see this giant brute of a creature, Odysseus decides that he and his 12 best fighters will go on ahead and everyone else in their group will stay behind and watch the ship. And in lines 95 through 111 or so, we get this really interesting but seemingly out of place description of this wine Odysseus brought with him. A goat skin full of the sweet liquor that Euanthe's son Marin gave him. This guy Marin had kept Apollos, the gods, holy grove at Ismarus. So even though this seems strange to us, obviously this wine has some significance. It is a wine that is somehow related to Apollo, and as such, we can guess that it's pretty nice if it's good enough for a god. And Odysseus goes on to explain about this recipe to create this wine, and from this description, we can see that it's a really beautiful wine. It has a sweet scent. It's ruby-colored and honey-smooth. And before Odysseus and his 12 best fighters set off to go confront this brute, this monster, this mountain of a creature, they all have wine together. Maybe this is a celebration. Maybe this is a bit of a strange goodbye and we don't really know. We just get this sense of ritual and send off. And after they all take this wine together, Odysseus takes another skinful and brings it along with him as well as victuals or food. Because as Odysseus says, for in my bones I knew some towering brute would be upon us soon, all outward power, wild man, ignorant of civility. The question here becomes, if Odysseus did indeed feel this in his bones, as he's telling ten years later that he did, why did he insist on going forward? What did they need from this creature that he knew was going to be uncivilized, that he knew was going to be wild, that they couldn't get without confronting this brute? So if Odysseus knew he was going to have a fight... Why did he insist on going? Nonetheless, they insist, and they see the Cyclops who is out in his field with his fat sheep, and so they look around at everything inside the creature's cave. They see a drying rack with cheese, pens crowded with lambs and kids or baby goats, and here is one of the moments where I personally question Odysseus the most, and I'm certain that many people do, because in lines 126 through 129, we see his men pressing around him, pleading, why not take these cheese, get them stowed, come back, throw up in all the pens, and make a run for it? We will drive the kids and lambs aboard. This means his men wanted to just take all this stuff from the cave of the Cyclops. This is why they went forward anyways, because they needed more food. And here, they have the perfect opportunity to steal without getting in trouble or without getting caught. They just need to take what they can right now, store it aboard, come back, release all the kids and the lambs, the baby goats, the baby lambs, and get out of there safely. But... As Odysseus himself admits, how sound that was, yet I refused, because he, quote, wished to see the caveman and what he had to offer. This can be interpreted in a couple of ways. Maybe he, Odysseus, thinks that this caveman, the Cyclops, has hidden treasure or something else that he could offer Odysseus and his men. It could also mean that Odysseus is looking for a fight and looking for what this creature has to offer in terms of a battle. And as Odysseus himself admits in line 132, what the caveman turns out to offer is not a pretty sight for his friends. On page 1215, we see Odysseus and his men light a fire, burn an offering to the gods, take some of the cheese and start to eat it while waiting for the Cyclops to return to his cave. It was then in their silence around the fire, waiting, that the Cyclops comes home. And he brought loads of dry boughs, or dried tree branches, 
So to give an image of this, a giant came home carrying several giant tree branches. And then this giant creature speaks to them. Strangers, who are you and where from? What brings you here by seaways or a fair traffic? Or are you wandering rogues who cast your lives like dice and ravaged other folks by sea? I see a little bit of similarity in what the Cyclops is asking compared to what Telemachus asked the stranger at his house in book one. Questions all of us would probably ask if someone came into our home, especially of people who invited themselves into your home and started eating your food without being invited. A little bit like Odysseus and his men are echoing what the suitors later do in Odysseus's own home. And this Cyclops asks why they're there. Are they there for good reasons or are they there risking their lives because they want to challenge this brute? It is from this question that Odysseus and his men feel pressure on their hearts in dread of that deep rumble in that mighty man. Odysseus seems to finally realize that they are no match for this creature. He is mighty, his voice rumbles, and they start to feel dread. But even with that dread in his heart, Odysseus replies, We are from Troy, Achaeans, blown off course by shifting gales of the great South Sea, homeward bound, but taking roots in ways uncommon, so the will of Zeus would have it. Here, Odysseus admits that this detour, this gale or this wind that blew them off course, was not intentional on his part. It was the gods interfering with him getting home directly. Despite this unintentional detour, they are going about this journey, going on this route that the gods sent them on, which is not typical or what they would choose, further showing that Odysseus is simply following what seems to be the will of the gods. In lines 167 through 169, Odysseus describes the valor and intensity of Agamemnon, who the whole world knows what city he laid waste and what armies he destroyed, showing the general perception that the Greeks had of Agamemnon, despite what we might think in modern day of him for sacrificing his own daughter Iphigenia to appease the goddess Artemis after he was the one who angered Artemis in the first place. But anyways, that's a tale for another day. People really like Agamemnon and how great in battle he was. He was chosen by the gods to be the leader of the other Greek kings. They liked him. And this information, which Odysseus shares with the Cyclops, it could be in an attempt to intimidate the Cyclops and show that Odysseus and his men were part of this great army that served under the great king Agamemnon, who at this point is still alive because he's just returning home. Odysseus would not have heard word that he had been killed. From this little intimidation tactic, Odysseus shifts gears toward bringing up the Greek custom of Xenia. And he says, It is our luck to come here, and here we stand beholden for your help looking for your help or any gifts that you have to give us. Essentially, Odysseus reminds the Cyclops that he needs to follow the Greeks' custom, or the Cyclops risks angering the gods because Zeus will avenge the unoffending guest. But is Odysseus unoffending? I'm not so sure. Clearly, Odysseus thinks he is, and he expects this non-human creature to follow human customs. Oh boy. On page 1216, the Cyclops answers from his brute chest unmoved. You are a ninny, which means a fool, a simpleton. Or else you have come from the other end of nowhere telling me, mind the gods. We Cyclops care not a whit for your thundering Zeus or all the gods in bliss. We have more force by far. I would not let you go for fear of Zeus, you or your friends, unless I had a whim to. Tell me, where was it now that you left your ship? Around the point or down the shore, I wonder? 
Oh boy, indeed. The Cyclops called Odysseus a simpleton, a fool. Or if not that, then someone who has no idea who the Cyclops are, because we Cyclops don't care at all for Zeus or any of the other gods. We're stronger than them, by far. And under no circumstance would this Cyclops let any of them go for fear of the gods. He wouldn't let them go at all, unless he wanted to. Odysseus and his men are surely in for a treat. Somebody who isn't afraid of the wrath of the gods. And now, the Cyclops asks, where exactly did you leave your ship? Not a good sign. Odysseus, though, is not a simpleton. And he saw through this question about where the ship was. And he had a ready lie. My ship? Poseidon, lord who sets the earth a-tremble, broke it upon the rocks at your land's end. A wind from seaward served him, drove us here. We are survivors, these good men and I. He refuses to give up the location of a ship because he knows nothing good can come of it. Neither reply nor pity came from him, but in one stride he clutched at my companions and caught two in his hands like squirming puppies to beat their brains out, battering the floor. Then he dismembered them and made his meal gaping and crunching like a mountain lion. Everything. Innards, flesh, marrow of bones. The Cyclops just went ham on Odysseus's men. When Odysseus doesn't give up the ship location, or perhaps because he's just hungry, the Cyclops lunges forward, grabs two of Odysseus's men, eats them. Eats every piece of them. Gnarly. Unprepared for this gruesome attack, Odysseus and his men cried aloud, lifting their hands to Zeus, powerless, looking on at this appalled and filled with horror. But the Cyclops went on filling up his belly with man flesh and great gulps of whey, likely some type of beer or mead. Then the Cyclops lay down like a mast or a giant pole amongst his sheep. Odysseus, with his heart beating high and with a chance of doing something, drew his sharpest sword and went along the Cyclops' side to where the midriff holds the liver, in fact, and he touched that spot, ready to kill him. But sudden fear hit him. If Odysseus killed the Cyclops, he and his men would perish or die. They were trapped in the cave with the Cyclops because the cave's door was a giant rock so big that only the Cyclops could move it. And line 210 reads, So we were left to groan and wait for morning. This great strategic warrior is seemingly trapped by a brute, an unintelligent beast. We'll just have to wait and see what this cunning man can do to escape. Because as Athena claims in book one, Odysseus can do anything. And we'll see how many men must die for Odysseus's curiosity. We've come to the end of our episode. In this episode, we covered the beginning of book nine. We hear Odysseus take up the storytelling himself, relaying his previous journey to the king of the Phoenicians. And from there, we jumped back in time to when Odysseus and his men first left the Trojan War. They were blown off course and away from home at the will of the gods. And there, they encountered several creatures and quite a lot of wilderness. They encountered the Cyclops, Polyphemus, who will continue to brutalize Odysseus and his men. And we'll find out what other horrors confront Odysseus and his remaining 10 best men. We shall see what Odysseus does to save himself and his men. If you want to hear more about the Lotus Eaters, there's more information out there. Other ancient myths present encounters with these peaceful but heavily sedated people as well. And if you're interested, check out Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, The Lotus Eaters, which was inspired by and also provides an interesting depiction of Odysseus and his men's experiences during their engagement with the Lotus Eaters. It's trippy. Special thanks to these sources. Robert Fitzgerald's translation of Homer's The Odyssey. Myths and Monsters series with Nicholas Day on Netflix. Study.com. Britannica. And Poetry Foundation for Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, The Lotus Eaters. (laughs) 